You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClinathan. I don't want to alarm you, Wade, but I am feeling much better after having been exhumed from my slumber beneath the English countryside. You know, Kevin, I've talked about this before on the podcast. I really hate it when Americans try to do British accents. So... Please, I don't even think we should go there this episode. You're singing my song, Wade. I wouldn't even dream of afflicting anyone with my (laughs) horrible accent work. (laughs) Listeners, today we're looking at the Netflix drama from director Simon Stone, The Dig. Also, as usual, we'll be offering our weekly recommendations from the world of television or film here on episode 280 of Seeing and Believing. Should we take a look at them, then? Right. Things like this are usually done through museums. Yes, but with the war coming, they couldn't embark upon any new ventures. Well, I've been on digs since I was old enough to hold a trowel. My father taught me. What are they? We're standing in someone's graveyard, I reckon. Viking? Maybe older. Mr. Brown is an archaeologist. Well, I'm an excavator. You've come to dig up the mounds. So you think there's something beneath? Who are those men? They're from the museum. Ye gods! Mrs. Pretty, I think you'd better come and see. Yes, listeners, it's episode 280 of Seeing and Believing. We're going to get to some of our recommendations here at the end of the show. Right now, we're going to jump into our review of The Dig. And Kevin, I was thinking about that title, The Dig. This has nothing to do with my review, but I feel like that title could work for a lot of different films. It could be like this cool high school drama called The Dig, or it could be like a psychedelic police drama from the 70s called The Dig. There's just a lot of options here. Get get some of that uh the, you know, the wah wah, you know, guitar pedals in there, get the get the funk soundtrack in there. I actually, you know, after I I mentioned being exhumed from beneath the English countryside, it occurred to me that The Dig would actually for me it sounds a little bit like a horror movie, you know, like oh. The Dig. What will they bring yeah. to the light that should have been left hidden so oh man it's a versatile title for sure no no it definitely is and i will tell our listeners that i did my best in the introduction to not say hey you're going to find out if we dig this movie i didn't do it so i feel like i feel like i get a prize for that i should get a prize for it well, yeah, but you did it just now, so the price is taken <laughs> away, and you are hereby barred from all oh, further no. dad jokes during seeing and believing recording. I was sessions. like, I can, I can get around it by talking about not telling the joke in a way that no. still tells the joke. No, no, that's that is cheating. <laughs> and as the dad joke police, I am writing you a ticket. <laughs> it's like that meme with the character from The Simpsons getting pulled away by the police officers. Um, and that's that's me. Listeners, we want to thank you for supporting our podcast, letting us get some of these dad jokes out by going on over to our Patreon campaign and being a donor. All of you have done that. We just, we really appreciate those who've participated. You just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing. 
underscore podcast, and you can you can help us out and keep the show going. And a lot of different donation levels. We haven't done this for a couple of weeks, Kevin, but I feel like I feel like we need to. A lot of different donation levels. One of them is the what can you buy for $5 level. I'm giddy because we haven't done this for a few weeks. And so I wanted to ask you, Kevin, what could someone buy for five bucks? Uh, five bucks would get sh- would buy a person a, a muzzle that their loved ones can put on them to prevent them from, uh, from further dad joke violations. <laughs> and I, I say that not directed at you specifically, Wade, because if we're being perfectly honest, the what can you buy for $5 thing that we do is basically a huge running bit that's entirely dad jokes. So I don't really have a... I shouldn't mm. be throwing stones from this glass house that I'm in. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I love I love the $5 item this week because it also works as a face mask, as a mask that will help us as we try to stop or contain the coronavirus. So it all kind of works in a lot of different ways. Very useful. And I appreciate it. So sometimes, Kevin... Before we do that joke, I'm like, if someone's listening to the podcast for the first time, they're like, what are they talking about? Five dollars. But if you listen to it every week, you know, it's a thing that we do that doesn't make a lot of sense, but we just keep doing it because it brings us joy. I think I can't even remember if how we stumbled onto it, but it was fairly early on. And once we stumbled into it, we just decided we would roll with it. And here we are and 280 episodes later, still going strong or at the very least still going. Yeah. Would you say, Kevin, we dug ourselves into a hole with that one and we just... I would not say that. (laughs) I would not say that, Wade. I I would not say it, and I wish that you had not said it as well. (laughs) Oh, well, that's our segue. Uh, Listeners, on this week's episode, Kevin and I discuss Simon Stone's The Dig, a Netflix release based on the historical novel by John Preston. Here's the movie's official synopsis to get us going. As World War II looms, a wealthy widow, played by Carrie Mulligan, hires an amateur archaeologist, played by Rafe Fiennes, to excavate the burial mounds on her estate. When they make a historic discovery, the echoes of Britain's past resonate in the face of its uncertain future. Lily James also stars as a young archaeology student commissioned to work on the project with her husband. Kevin, I'm not quite sure how to categorize the dig. I called it a drama earlier. In one sense, it's it's a serious meditation on the nature of life and death. It's also a bit melodramatic if we're looking at some of the relationships in the movie. And I'll say this, for the record, I don't necessarily view uh, melodrama as necessarily a bad quality. In your opinion, how do you think The Dig balances both of these qualities? Does it descend into a muddy mess or might Stone's film be this month's treasure beneath the sand. <laughs> well, you know, thank Sorry. you for, for that introduction. No, no, Wade. I, I, I like that you are going whole hog on yeah. the dig puns this week. There's not often that we review a film that lends itself so readily to such things. So we'll let you have it this okay. week. It's yeah. totally fine. <laughs> um, it's an interesting way to kick off the discussion for this film to talk about the the many different interpersonal subplots that suffuse this overarching narrative about 
an archaeological dig and how that resonates with concerns about life, death, history, and the arc, I guess, of of human experience. Those it feels very novelistic. I am definitely. I haven't read John Preston's novel that uh, screenwriter Moira Buffini uh, adapted uh, for her screenplay, but having watched the film now, I can definitely believe that this was adapted from a novel because it really does feel very novelistic in the way that it does have both the macro level of that historical context of the days just before World War II begins and the micro level of these various characters and their complex relationships with each other. Um, and that is kind of both the the pleasure and, and maybe a slight pitfall for the film. I don't think that Buffini and Simon Stone really manage the balancing act necessary to faithfully reproduce those novelistic elements for this film. It's not so much that they are badly done or amateurish in any way. It's more just that they they don't quite pull off the necessary uh, balance between giving each character enough time on screen for their point of view and their own relationships to feel fully fleshed out. That does happen for probably the two central characters, Carrie Mulligan's Mrs. Pretty and Rafe Fine's Mr. Brown. They are obviously, as kind of the two main characters, we spend a lot of time looking through their eyes, and so they seem very fully fleshed out. The secondary characters, the supporting cast, they're kind of on on the edge of feeling underdeveloped. They because we don't spend as much time with them, but enough time is devoted to uh, putting us in their place and kind of letting us leading us through their relationships. It does feel a little bit like like they're underdeveloped. Like we needed maybe another half hour of screen time so that they could be as fully flushed out as the central duo. And that does feel like a little bit of a of a flaw in the film. Now, having said that, I think that overall this is a good film. I had a really good I had a good time with it. And I do think that those overarching themes that we're talking about are are very resonant and interesting to think about. I really appreciated the Diggs portrait of a society kind of hanging on the precipice of war, being completely uncertain about its future, and the way that looking at the decaying remains of a much older society uh, can, can resonate over the centuries into that same mindset so that by looking into the past, there's some sense of proportion and perspective that allows these characters to make a little bit of sense of their their uncertain present and future. And I think that that's very well portrayed by, by Stone here. And even if the melodrama, as you said, doesn't quite get all the way there, I think that it's interesting enough to to carry this film. Yeah, so I, I like this movie quite a bit, and I... I th- I think it's probably stronger than maybe you think it is. And I wanted to flesh out that melodrama 
big idea, serious nature angle, because I think it all kind of works together. This is a film about history. It's a, a film about characters who live, fall in love, and die. And whether those characters die in the movie or they head off to war or, I mean, frankly, this is a film set in, the, in 1939. So the characters, uh, we know that they eventually will die. Uh, of course, like all of us. And the setting of the movie emphasizes that. So you have those, you have those ideas and then you have these, these sort of big relationship choices, uh, these, these choices of, of disease, uh, these uh, moments of grief, these characters sort of searching for love. And it all feels a bit exaggerated, like a, like a lot of life is happening for these characters in this small window. And I think that's where it gets a, this sense of melodrama. But I feel like that works because in the grand scheme of things, these characters are, they're just kind of footnotes in history. But within their world, when we enter their world, uh, their stories seem big like they, like they would to them. Uh, we all exaggerate our own stories. Uh, we all think we live, you know, these incredible, fascinating lives uh, when to most people our lives are, are pretty, pretty normal. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but we, send, we tend to inflate uh, the nature of our relationships and even our decisions. And I like how the movie does this. I was actually reminded of that great quote from Casablanca, where he says, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world, right? Of course, Humphrey Bogart is talking about their relationships and it's all happening during World War II. What does it ultimately matter? Well, it actually matters a lot because each life is precious. And I kind of get that vibe here too, that the war is going on, a lot of people will die, uh, <laughs> The UK will almost collapse. As Americans, we don't always realize the danger um, of their collapse and how close they were to being overrun by the Germans. Uh, and yet these stories do matter. So I, 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 I like these relationships. And I think to kind of answer um, or respond to your remark about these characters and the way that they're developed, I think the secondary killer characters maybe aren't as developed as the initial uh, set of characters, but I think I don't think they need to be because I think we're all kind of seeing a similar story here. Uh, th their lives may not be exactly parallel, but they're all kind of dealing with the same problems. So the development of one set of characters is actually the development of the other set of characters. So I felt like we, I felt like that worked pretty well across the film. Yeah, I mean, I see, I see what you're saying, and it's not something that I'm going to say is a a huge flaw with the film. Like I said, I, I do think this is a a fine film. Um, I guess for me, the the fact that these secondary characters, because they they aren't as fully fleshed out as the protagonists are, and yet they their own 
concern, their own personal concerns and the journey they take over the course of the film is so parallel to the protagonist. It feels a little bit to me like they they are mostly in the film to serve as illustrations of the film's central themes rather than characters in, in their own right. Characters that live and breathe and feel like like people who uh, are you know have their own their own internal universes just as much as the the two uh central characters that we follow for most of the picture now that's less of a of a huge problem and maybe more just evidence of the fact that these are interesting characters from the from the protagonist down through all of the supporting characters but it just it doesn't feel like we've got enough time with the the supporting cast. I guess the it, it's a good problem for a film to have to have supporting characters. Where <laughs> the the my biggest complaint is I wanted more of those characters. It's not so much I think they're poorly written or shallow or two dimensional. It's more just I feel like there's a lot that's kind of happening that got left on the cutting room floor or maybe just wasn't actually written into the script, but it could be there, and I'm interested to know more about them and the fact that it isn't in the final picture is a disappointment to me. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed being with these characters as well. I liked how succinct the film is. I will say this. It's kind of uh, gutsy. And at first I felt like it was an odd choice what the film does. We spend, uh, oh man, almost an hour with Rafe Fiennes his character and Carrie Mulligan's character and some other characters around them. And then just almost out of nowhere, uh, Lily James's character and her husband's character appear on the scene. And it makes sense as to why they appear. They're, they're starting to work on this dig that has uh, caused some ripples because a number of items of importance have been discovered. And so she's there. And the film kind of takes this turn. It's like it turns its camera to Lily James's character and her relationship with her husband and spends a little bit less time with Ray Fiennes' character and Carrie Mulligan's character. And it just, it was a little strange at first, but I got on the wavelength and it just really kind of worked for me. And I enjoyed seeing a film make that type of choice embrace it and and just kind of cause it to work i i do want to speak for a moment about the cinematography a number of shots are filmed uh from behind uh characters as they're talking and so uh, perhaps they're they're sort of walking and we get the backs of their heads as they're conversing with each other the film also edits some of the dialogue in a unique way and so we maybe get a clip of characters talking and then it cuts away to other shots, uh, perhaps some, some B-roll somewhere else, or we'll get shots of characters in between their conversation while we're listening to the previous conversation. And it's this sort of disembodied feeling uh, that runs through this film, which almost make these characters... Of feel like ghosts, which adds to the historical quality or what this film is trying to say about archaeology and what it's trying to say about about history. Uh, at the same time, we also get a lot of handheld shots, and some of the shots 
actually felt a bit modern in relation to this time period. And I thought that worked superbly because this is a movie set in the past and it's kind of constantly reminding us that we're watching it in the present. So we're watching it after, you know, if, if these characters are, after they're all gone, this is based on a true story, uh, which, is, which is a fascinating feeling. You're kind of feeling the history of this as you're watching it. And I just, I really do, I, I love that aspect of the movie. Yeah, it's a an interesting uh, point you make about the the editing in in this in this film. I like what you point out that it gives the the feeling that you know as we watch these characters uh, in in voiceover, we hear their conversation, but on screen, what uh, the editor and and the director have chosen to show us is just the characters looking at each other. It does, like you said, kind of lends this quality of some like we're 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 seeing uh a moment from the past where we're seeing people who are kind of almost haunting their own conversation and that's a really interesting point to make i'm glad you brought up the cinematography because that's actually one of that that's the element that's at the top of the notes that i have in front of me because i really like the cinematography here in this film mike ely is the director of photography here and what i really like about his work here is that he does a lot to play like he plays with focus a lot there are some uh, some establishing shots that Stone gives us of the countryside or of the dig site where uh, Ely really brings forth the haze in the atmosphere. So that there's kind of this hazy, indistinct quality to the figures that we see uh, moving around in, within the scene. There's a shot late in the film where uh, Ray finds his character is he's out in the moonlight. He's been stargazing and he he turns to leave and he's shot from above so that we can see his shadow cast by the moonlight onto the ground. And it's almost like his shadow is preceding him as he walks away. And his shadow is kind of this, again, a, a little bit of a fuzzy, indistinct thing. And it all works together to suggest what the, the screenplay is, is bringing to the fore, that these, you know... Life is all life is contained in a breath, like that, you know, Ecclesiastes, you know, man is here today and gone tomorrow. And the the passage of time marches on and people are ephemeral. They don't last forever. They're they're here, they're gone, they leave behind maybe a few artifacts, some evidence of their passing, but eventually the connection between the individual and those possessions that uh persist on after them uh falls away and is lost to memory and time and i think that that's such a a wonderful dovetailing of the the themes of the narrative with the use of the cinematic medium that i just really wanted to to call attention to that i also really liked how stone uh, a few times shoots his characters from a very low angle. So they're kind of, they, they seem very large or they're, they're silhouetted against the sky and they're kind of almost looming over us. And the way that these shots echo a sequence from about halfway through the film where we're in London and we're kind of looking up at these monuments of, of Gladstone and all these British historical figures who are, you know, they're, they're, their monuments, their statues, they're, they're being remembered after they're gone. And the way that, in a way, Stone's camera 
does the same for these remarkable people who, at least in their day, weren't remembered for the great contributions they made to archaeology. They were forgotten and were only remembered and memorialized many years after their death. And I think that Stone's directorial choices with those camera angles is also very evocative and uh, worth mentioning. Yeah, no, it's it really is. Uh, it really is fantastic here. And uh, whenever I watch a movie uh, that involves someone um, fixing up something like a house, it's very cathartic to kind of watch that uh, happen. And in this film, even though I, I know that excavating is is difficult, tiresome work, there's something very cathartic about watching these characters just uncover uh, this this find. And I, 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 re- I really enjoy it. It's just sort of this little throwaway. It's like, oh, I really I, I appreciate those scenes. It's fun to see them kind of digging and to discover stuff. So just on a pure enjoyment level, I, I like this a lot. There's there's one scene kind of that I think connects to what you're saying about history. And uh, we get a number of those uh, pieces of dialogue where characters will, will talk about uh, paintings on a cave wall and how those fingerprints kind of connect all of us as humans. Um, but Lily James's character, Peggy, she's uh, talking about this old uh, coin. Uh, I, I believe she says her, her father discovered it or gave it to her. And it's from... Uh, roughly uh, the time of, of Jesus. And she, as a child, she says that she believed that it was actually a coin that Jesus used, how he had uh, uh, interacted using this coin uh, with the teachers of the law. And he, I believe she mentions the render uh, under Caesar, what is Caesar's. And, and so uh, she talks about, you know, I believed it was actually the coin that I possessed. Uh, and then obviously she finds out that it's, it, you know, there's no way of, of knowing that, probably not. And she makes it a necklace. And it just reminded me of how connections to the past are so important. And we live in this very present world. Uh, you get on social media and all the talk is of the the latest, you know, the latest news, and uh, it's a Super Bowl commercial, or it's based on um, something that happened to a celebrity, uh, something that somebody said, and there are these articles that are written, and you know, we share them, and then the next week we've all just kind of moved on. We we are entrenched, entranced by, um, I should say, by by the present, and there's something powerful that when we connect ourselves to the past. And as a Christian, of course, uh, and I think I can bring that up because this is, uh, she does talk about the person of Jesus as a Christian, right? Things like the Lord's prayer, uh, communion, baptism. These are these very tangible, uh, ordinances or activities uh, that we participate in that connect us to the, the all of, of church history. And as I watched this film, it just reminded me of how important it is to remember the past. And uh, uh, Rafe finds his character. He talks about how what he does means something. That's why he does it. And these things that he digs up, they are they are important uh, more than even maybe more so. He says than just this temporary war. 
And, uh, I, I, you know, we can kind of feel that. We feel that. He's not just talking about objects, but this connection to something deeper. And uh, I think those themes are re- explored pretty well in this movie. I really like that speech that you mentioned where uh, Lily James's Peggy talks about the the ancient coin that her that that she received from her father because as as you highlighted it in in that kind of telling history becomes almost sacramental right like the reason that we take communion is we do it in remembrance of Jesus uh, the, the sacraments are there there it's a sacramental view of of our practices is that we do these physical things, because they also have spiritual significance. They connect us to uh, a spiritual life in a way that simply sort of sitting and thinking about spiritual things doesn't quite accomplish. And basically, this film posits history as a sort of sacramentality. The, The physical object of that coin that you know, Jesus would have been talking about that same coin when he uh, was, you know, talking about rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Having that physical object to hold when you contemplate that scripture passage is meaningful in a way that's it's difficult to put your finger on, but is very real. And I mean, I I actually had the chance to be at the British Museum once when I was in college, and on the day I was there, they just happened to be doing a uh, a kind of a hands-on exhibit where you could hold, you know, these insanely old objects. And I actually got to hold a a Roman coin. I don't I don't remember quite how how old it was. It might have even been older than the time of Jesus. But it's true that just holding an object that ancient in your hand and realizing this object passed through the hands of somebody thousands of years ago is incredible and connects you in a very real way to the people who have come before you. So even if their their names are forgotten in the way that the the name of uh, Ray Fiennes' Basil Brown is almost forgotten in this picture, even if their names are forgotten, they there is there are vestiges of themselves that are left behind and we can be connected to them. And that connection is, is re- really meaningful, which again, going back to the discussion of sacraments, there's a reason that the church has been practicing these sacraments for the past two millennia, and that might just be one of them. And it's really interesting to have a film like The Dig bring, bring up these questions for a Christian viewer. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. And it was, it was delighted uh, to get that speech in the movie it was it was a great it was a great piece of of filmmaking great piece of of uh, writing and you know walking away from this film just thinking to myself we we are we are living in an uncertain time uh, with an uncertain future how might the past help us move forward Uh, what might the past say to us uh, as we as we you know Try to take it a day at a time, not really knowing what next month or even next year looks like. And so I think a film like The Dig, it, it's, so, it's so timely for me, and I, I, yeah, I liked it a lot. Listeners, The Dig is currently streaming on Netflix. You can watch it now. If you've had a chance to see it, we'd love to get your thoughts. Just tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.
Com. We've reached the point of the episode where we recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. Kevin, you're up first this week. What would you like to recommend today? Okay, well, I was I was thinking about, uh, you know, something to tie into the dig. And one thing that I was thinking about is Carrie Mulligan is obviously the the female lead in this film and i really like carrie mulligan a lot i she's might be one of my favorite working actresses today i just think she's got such versatility she can play so many different kinds of roles and be utterly convincing in all of them and i just think she's She's fascinating to watch. And that made me think about the first time I actually saw her in something, which was way back in 2007 uh, in a season three episode of Doctor Who titled Blink. And I'm not a big Doctor Who fan. I, I know that there, there are really diehard fans who watch all the episodes. I watched uh, maybe a, a season or so of, of the show and then, you know, a scattering of... of odd episodes here and there throughout from throughout the series run uh doctor who's not really for me but i do really like the episode blink uh it's and it's an episode that even if you're not a doctor who fan you can still drop into it and uh be perfectly up to speed the the series mythology is kind of uh in the background it's basically just a really good standalone hour of television that tells a really tight thriller type story about uh, these creatures who uh, look like statues of weeping angels and they are malevolent and they can creep up on you when you're not looking is essentially the premise. But the reason I want to recommend it is, I mean, it's obviously a really just entertaining hour of television, but it also features uh, what I consider to be Carrie Mulligan's star-making performance. I mean, the kind of her breakout role was probably 2009's An Education, and she's also extremely good in that. But I remember seeing this episode for the first time and just thinking, who is that actress? She's amazing. And that, I think, is really the mark of a, a real talent, the sort of talent that you can be watching something and that person comes on screen and you immediately just want to know. I, I want to know who that person is and I want to know what else I can see them in because they're just fascinating to watch. And Mulligan's really good in that episode. Again, it's super entertaining. And if you are the sort of a person who wants to uh, dig deeper into Doctor Who, I think uh, all of the, at least the modern day episodes can be found on HBO Max uh, to be streamed, so you can check it out there. But in any case, definitely check out uh, Season 3's Blink. It's a good one. Well, I, I'm sorry, sad to say, I've, I've not watched any Doctor Who at all. I uh, just haven't done that, but I need to. It just feels kind of daunting, I guess. Uh, where you know, where do <laughs> yeah. I start? Where do I begin? But um, maybe I'll start with that episode. We'll, we'll kind of check that out and go from there. Uh, I have a recommendation this week, and it's a it's a television show that a lot of people have been talking about recently. It just streamed its third season on Netflix, and that's uh, Cobra Kai. Now. I've only seen uh, season one and the first part of season two, but everybody's been talking about it, and I figured I'd offer my thoughts up to this point. I really, I really like Cobra Kai. I wasn't much of a karate kid person. I, I, I've seen the films, but just 
I don't know, maybe once. I feel like I've seen the next Karate Kid starring Hilary Swank uh, when she was a teenager. I feel like I've seen that one the most. Uh, but uh, this is a television show that I think builds off of those characters and frankly, I think makes the story better. So at the end of the Karate Kid, uh, the 1984 All-Valley Karate Tournament, uh, Daniel LaRusso defeats Johnny Lawrence, who of course is is the bully. And now uh, the show catches up with their characters and their rivalry starts again. I normally don't like these type of takes that happen decades after kind of the hit movie or television show, but I really like where these characters are and and the development of these characters so far. I've heard it, it only gets better moving forward, which is exciting because, you know, the first season and a half is, is very good. And uh, the film also, or the television show, also kind of leans into this 80s cheesiness, which uh, works pretty well, works to its benefit. So uh, a lot of fun. Uh, Cobra Kai, it's streaming on, on Netflix. Yeah, that, you know, <laughs> I, I'm like you in that when I heard about the, the premise of Cobra Kai, I'm like, really, you know, we really have to get uh, a spinoff of the Karate Kid, which don't get me wrong, I like the Karate Kid. I was, I probably was a little bit obsessed with it back when it first came out. Just I thought <laughs> it was, I thought it was just so cool to like do karate the way that oh, you know, Daniel from that movie does. Um, and I, I think it's, it actually holds up pretty well. Uh, I haven't seen it uh, super recently, but it's a good film. I, I don't know if it's as if it's a sturdy enough story to really support a spinoff. So I'm skeptical of it, but you're not the first person to sing the praises of Cobra Kai. So I don't know, maybe I need to, to, uh, you know, check it out and just go in with an open mind and, and see how it strikes me. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm telling you, I was skeptical too. And this started on YouTube TV. I was like, okay, this Karate Kid revival that's premiering on YouTube is going to be horrible. Um, but it's just been it's been a fun watch for me and i it's weird cuz i'll i'll laugh so hard watching this show and then there'll be a couple moments where you almost kind of want to cry you're almost tearing up a bit and for a show like this to do that i i think is a is a you know it's no small feat so uh yeah cobra kai currently playing on netflix listeners that is the end of our episode Thank you for listening. Once again, we will remind you to rate and review the show on iTunes. Just search Seeing and Believing. You'll see our icon pop up. Give us a star rating. Write out a review. You can contact us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod, at cbelievepod. This episode is brought to you by crassandpopculture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz used under Creative Commons License 3.0.